how brands buy, how brands will operate and live in the space. It's very different now than it was six months ago. Welcome to Podcast Perspectives. I'm your host, Jeff Umbro, founder and CEO of The Podglomerate, a company that produces, distributes, and monetizes podcasts. You can find more from us at podglomerate.com. Today on the show, we are chatting with Russell Weissman, the COO of All Things Comedy. All Things Comedy is kind of a multi-platform comedy network. I say multi-platform because the company operates in the video space, audio space. It does live tours. It is founded by Al Madrigal and Bill Burr. You may have heard of one or both of them. In essence, all of the different pieces of this company help one another, whether on the promotional side or the creative side or just the distribution vehicles. Russell is a really interesting figure and character and in person to talk to about this because he is an early employee of All Things Comedy and helped them to build out the infrastructure. He recently was promoted to chief operating officer of the business. This was a really fun conversation to record. Russell and I have known each other for years, so it was really nice to put something on tape. I hope you all enjoy uh, and talk to you soon. Russell, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to start, I, I usually hate this question, but I want to start by having you kind of walk through your background because I think that you are very like particularly built for this industry. So where did, where did you get your start? Yeah, my route was more on the traditional side of things at first. So I actually started in a temp agency. I'm going to go way back, but I started in a temp agency that was at Sony Pictures and landed a job in creative advertising. So trailers, TV spots, billboards. I supported the senior VP in that division and their main function was to be the producer internally and to understand working with outside vendors and cutting the creative materials based on positioning studies and data coming from the strategy team and whatnot. So it was a pretty big effort. And from there, I moved uh, to global strategy uh, and research with one of the heads of the studio there at Sony. And that really helped me understand how data and creative work together. And I was there for, in total, at Sony for about five plus years. And a friend of mine was at a startup company called Maker Studios and was very good friends with the founder. And they were one of the first companies that were working with YouTubers and building original content there and were a part of that first initial investment from YouTube. Can you also like say what Maker Studios was? Because yeah. I don't want to gloss over that. I think it was like kind of a, a really good comp of what we're seeing today in podcasting. So Maker Studio was... The more traditional term would be, it was one of the first MCNs, multi-channel network, that was built specifically for creating content on YouTube, working with influencers and artists on YouTube, building their audiences there, and figuring out how to monetize and distribute content to YouTube first, right? And then it became other platforms in the future. And so I was brought in to help build the Latino network called Tutele. And, you know, it was very divided into divisions. So there was a, a Latino network, there was a mom's network, there was a kid's network, there was a gaming network. So as I was there, I kind of morphed into different things. And I was at Maker for three or four years. And then I moved into a central division that was about audience strategy. So how do you build audiences on YouTube? How can you optimize your content for the platform? How can you work with brands? So we sat in between the brands team and the creator team and we're figuring out how do you match brands to the right content creator to find the right audience, to reach the right level of eyeballs, right? So instead of focusing only on YouTube, their focus was to build audiences across other social platforms and do the same thing. So 
Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube were part of their main strategy. Similarly, I went into their uh, company to sort of help build the infrastructure and be the in-between of the company and the creators and the brands and figure out how, how do all these pieces connect, right? All of those things sort of led me down the path. You know, I ended up leaving that company after about three years and stumbled into all things comedy. I went in just for a conversation. They had just raised some initial funding. It was only supposed to be 30 minutes. I was there for like two hours. And then by the time I got home, he was trying to figure out how I could get into the company. So I've been there now since August, 2017. So that's six years, coming up on six years next month. All Things Comedy is is fairly unique in that on its own as a podcast network, it's fairly large. According to PodTrack, it's a top 10 network. It's also just one piece of the larger business. So like, what is All Things Comedy? All Things Comedy is what I would consider, you know, a modern media company, essentially, right? So, like, this is what studios are, right? You have, you, it's hard to just be one thing. You have to sort of be a few things. And so, it started as a podcast network and uh, a podcast company. And, you know, Bill Burr and Al Madrigal in the parking lot of the comedy store. This is the story that they told me you know, a thousand times. They came together and knew that people were coming into the podcast space that would potentially take advantage of creators and artists because that's just the pattern that has existed through every other entertainment avenue that that we're aware of right so they came together and felt that they were stronger banding together as a network and their two shows became 10 very quickly that became 50 that became i think at our largest we were at like 80 or 90 and partnered in different ways right it was more of a co-op at that time this was before i even got to the company and you know, they felt that they had stronger leveraging power when speaking to brands that they couldn't t- be taken advantage of when talking to distributors, things like that. So it was a podcast network first and foremost, and then it started to take shape into something more of a media company. So podcasting is still the lifeblood. The goal was to focus on developing original content. So we were doing a lot of stand-up specials, which we currently still are. We've done a few for Comedy Central. We've done a lot for Netflix. We've done um, quite a bit like self-releasing as well. And then we have two feature films that are in the can. One of them will probably have an announcement fairly soon. And then beyond that, we also work with brands in like a more direct route, not just for podcasts, but we'll work with them on creating content for their own socials. You know, we can white label how we create content for them, or we can integrate into our own distribution. We're partnered with a lot of different shows in different ways. And I think that there are some shows that we'll see you know maximum value because they lean in a little bit more as far as what services they can get or what tools they get access to or opportunities that exist right it could be content related it could just be you know how active and engaged the creator is you know a network can be as much or as little as the creator wants it to be right but i think it's just knowing kind of what your needs are up front and so and using us as a great support piece for you not just production support, but like it just depends on like what you're really looking for. It's really interesting the way that you guys approach this, though, because I think it's in a lot of ways like the right way to do it. And I think you've very meticulously and purposefully built the network in the way that you have in order to support the creators in the way that you do. But ultimately, like you guys have like a carte blanche approach where you have something for everyone. You can create really valuable content for any brand that you're working with. For any creator that comes to you guys interested in making a show or or otherwise yeah it's kind of great because you guys can actually like go and like now you have a marketing vehicle built in for like the films that you're putting out completely and i think that's the draw right so when i worked at sony 
social media was very popular and you know they didn't really care if artists like promoted on their socials right they thought it was good added value so on and so forth when i moved to maker it started to become this really valuable asset right is owning that audience and promoting the things that you're in so then like traditional studios were then requiring social media posts as part of the uh, as part of the rollout right I worked in book publishing and there was publishers that would take authors literally because of their like Facebook or Twitter following or something. Completely. Like being your own vehicle, being your own brand and being able to speak to the audience that you've created, the community that you've created is tre is tremendously valuable, right? So when I came into All Things Comedy, it was just like there was no social presence. It was just kind of like reposting. There was kind of no point of view. And the accounts still to this day, like it's grittiness, right? It's just, it's an aggregator type of account but it has a point of view. And I think our social manager has done a really great job is to like kind of be that filter and be that curator of things. There's tiers of it though. Like if you're a network and, and company, like your point of view is very different than a show. A hundred percent. And that point of view is very different than the creator as a person. We run into this constantly. That's our number one kind of tension point when it comes to social is like as a company, like we have, we represent a lot of different shows that have a lot of different points of views, genres, topics, guests, hosts, etc. For the most part, we don't have the cohesiveness that in all things comedy has. So we don't necessarily have people who are coming to us for like the podglomerate viewpoint. And thus it's like very hard for us to like focus on the company as a whole. And you guys don't really have that problem. It sounds like in part because of the work that you and the team did. And I think we do. I mean, the sense, I don't think people care about our point of view. You know what I mean? Well, they, they come to you guys because they want to laugh. Like that's a point of view. Correct. I think our point of view, though, is to not be polarizing in that way. Let the let the material, right? Let the comedy, let the stand up be the voice for us. But you know, in the captions, it's trying to figure out like how much do you push, how much do you pull, how much are you highlighting, or how much are you actually taking a stance. And I think that we like any social media account or platform. Like you get, you know, the the, the loudest people are those that are most likely speaking negatively right and you do get positive sentiment but for us because we're an aggregator account in that sense where we're trying to highlight all of our podcasts but also the projects that they're connected to as well so it's stand-up comedy it's sketch it's podcasts it's it's things that we're being asked to promote because it's podcasting is is a big part of their lives or it's not the only part of their lives I actually want to dive into that a little bit because I think that there is a lot there where a traditional podcaster and just somebody who is outside of the space like may not know this, but your network, and I think a lot of networks are like this, but like you have a combination of owned and operated and licensed content. Can you walk the listener through like what that means? Yeah. So our company initially was built as a, you know, we were sort of structured as a co-op. So it was most of the shows that we were partnered with are owner operators, like independent owner operators. And so what we would do is manage audience growth, sales, marketing, and so on. Like there's a lot of things within that, right? So most of the shows in our network are in the, they own the show. Like they're, it's very, it's incredibly rare for us to go to a show and say, Hey, we love your show. We want to partner with you, but you have to give us IP of your show. The goal of our partnership for most of the shows that are in the network, it's really just 
I would say it takes more of a services type structure where you own the show and we're going to take a percentage rev share on any sales opportunities that come in or, or other branded content initiatives that come in that we can sort of share with you. Right. And not everyone gets that, right? Like it's, I would say how brands buy, how brands will operate and live in the space. It's very different now than it was six months ago. The type of spends are changing. So how, how brands are buying, what they're buying, where they're buying, what you have to include in that campaign is changing. And that all is being dictated by, you know, macroeconomic issues, by performance issues, right? Like if YouTube changes how a show is discovered, it could absolutely impact like how a link is visible in the description when you're watching the video. So it has unintended consequences whenever there is a change to a platform, audio and video. And I think that's part of the difficulty of being a creator or company today is you're trying to figure out where things are headed, but you're also trying to maintain this growth trajectory that you're on. And it's like whack-a-mole, right? Like you're building IP and you are building value on the backs of other platforms that you have no ownership of. That's why there was this huge push for like building your own OTT platform or, you know, apps are the big rage and then they're not because you can't send audiences there and nobody wants to do subscription models. So like you always sort of hear these things kind of come back up. And it's the reason is, is that everyone is trying to own their audience. Well, I think that there's two real like kind of points of view here. It's the all things comedy model. The creator owns their their content. All things comedy helps to grow and sell that content. And the creator takes a piece of it. All things comedy takes a piece of that. And then the second model is all things comedy contributes essentially like the premium version of those services in exchange for like some portion or all of the ownership or something. The biggest thing that we've carved out for ourselves is that like we're very transparent in fees, in costs, in brand partnership revenue, in what the splits are on IP if we go to something bigger, right? And we try to have the creator, who's an important piece of the process, stay in the process. If it's your concept and we want to partner with you and build it out and make it something more than just an idea, then you as the creator, I think, are you have more access. But that's a big focus for just all things comedy in general is the transparency and allowing the creator to be more involved than they would be if it went through older traditional routes. So if I come to you and I have a podcast that I want to make with all things comedy, what does that process look like? Like pretend you guys love the idea and you want to work with me. Yeah. So the first thing we do is we'll bring in the operations team and the development team and we'll kind of have like a get to know you conversation. We'll kind of talk through the concept. I like to see how much thought the artist or creator or host has put into a hypothetical run of show, right? And if they have already started to target like marketing partners or launch windows or brand partnership alignment, right? That's the stuff that I look for to see like, is this person all in? How much of an understanding do they have of the marketplace in general? Yeah, it's you need a certain amount of effort, really. It's like, there's nothing I hate more than when someone comes to me who like clearly hasn't really thought through any of this stuff or done like the bare minimum of research because it just shows like what kind of partner they might be in the future. And that is exactly my point. It's the preparation. You know, when we have this kickoff meeting, it sort of sets the tone in the sense of like, what is the project and what are we getting into and what's the market viability? And I think that that's the more complicated piece. The market now is a lot harder than it's ever been in for the audio side. For video, it's the same kind of difficult as these 
platforms become more mature and the content recommendation and the content association becomes better, then you'll be able to find your community a little bit easier. We're just not there yet. So in that pitch meeting, right? Like those are the things that we sort of talk through and try to figure out. Our development team will want to lean in and really get into the weeds on helping structure the show and talk to creative. We'll try to do a pilot run. Um, and then if things feel like they're in a good place, we'll kind of work backwards. Like we'll have kind of a target date of when we would want to release and then work backwards and figure out like what are the exact sort of tenfold dates that we need to hit in order to make sure that we have all of the assets in place to hit that launch window. Then you have to work on that marketing plan. And the marketing plan could be just as complex as trying to put the actual content together, right? Because you are marrying things, right? Trying to identify the audiences you're trying to target and then create some type of formula that, you know, X amount of impressions might yield a certain conversion rate. And then can you retain that conversion, right? Or can you re retain that audience that comes back and on which platform? And it's not like you just launch it and then it's out there and you're good, right? Like there's this programming strategy and there's a marketing strategy that you sort of try to stick to because you can have this huge race out of the gate, but that doesn't mean that that's going to give you that consistency, right? Like you have to think of who are my biggest guests, who are the guests that like are great, but aren't as well known. So you have, you're thinking like peaks and valleys, you know, your peak is your biggest performing episodes, your valleys are the lower performing episodes. How can you continue to build on that, right? And put a st strategic calendar together. I'm I'm so curious actually, because I think the point I think you're making is that like it's a never ending race to continue to market a show. And my counterpoint to that is that there are some people, the Royals, like Meghan Markle, Obama with his show, several other celebrity podcasts. The thinking goes that you don't really have to do much. Like if you build it, they will come. And that's where a lot of these different organizations have gotten into so much trouble over the years. I am so curious what you think of that, like and what you've seen with somebody like a Bill Burr, who, who is basically a household name, like maybe not, you know, Barack Obama, but, but people, people know Bill. Yeah. And I can, I cannot speak for Bill and his personal experiences, but I can tell you even before coming to all things comedy, that was still the thinking on every platform that I've ever worked. It's always been, they're super famous. The audiences will follow. And I think that like, that's a very, that's an edge case. I think that there are some people who absolutely fall into that bucket and it doesn't matter what they do. Like honestly, Jerry Cruz, perfect example of that, right? Worked with his YouTube channel back in the day. Anything he did would hit gold and everything that he does, people just eat up on every platform. When you look at those deals that, uh, platform has made with like the Obamas and so on and so forth. I think the difference is, is that I think it's not understanding what the actual level of success is like really showcasing, having a very clear goal as to like, this is what success is for us. Right. And I think for a platform like Spotify or Amazon and Sirius and, you know, iHeart, whatever it is, it's, it's signups and it's not just signups, it's retention. Right. But. I also think within that, it's how do you move people who are not podcast consumers in that marketplace and market to them in platform to move them into consuming more podcast content in your platform. So I think artists, because they're famous, can command audiences. I think, sure, like that argument exists and there are some that can, but I would say that like most don't jump platforms, right? 
unless you're super crazy famous, right? Like I think someone like Bill, and I will say this about Bill, I know how hard he works. Like I just see it from a bit from a distance of how consistent he is and how dedicated he is to put out two shows a week, two podcasts a week, even while his touring is going crazy. And it's not that he is popular because he's famous. He has put in the work. Smartless is a much better example of like, those are three very famous, very appealing artists. And their show, you know, during COVID just flew like a rocket ship, right? It continues to soar. I think you you nailed it. Because even the Smartless guys, like they're putting in the time, the energy, the work. Like none of us know what is true and what's not with this. But like the situation with Harry and Spotify, like there's some reporting saying basically that like, they didn't produce anything and like i don't know what happened but because i i am like very against the idea of like you know finding somebody with a massive platform and giving them a podcast because they have that like without also having the underlying idea behind it so all things comedy is like a fairly unique company in a million ways but it is also a comedy podcast network. And comedy has traditionally been like a massive section of the podcast ecosystem. Some of the first big podcasts were from comedians. To this day, we still see comedy podcasts like kind of breaking out, at least word of mouth wise, more frequently than others. Although there is a really interesting stat that of the like top 400 something shows, only 2% of them are from comedians. Yet, I feel like there's an inordinate amount of like people who talk through kind of word of mouth recommendations for comedy podcasts. So I guess I wanted to ask like, what role does all things comedy play within that ecosystem? Is there anything different from a comedy network than from like a traditional podcast network? And you know this because you worked with maker studio and you've kind of seen like all the different verticals. Like what do you have to consider when it comes to production, IP, ad sales, all that stuff? Yeah, so I think that they're all very independent of each other, like those things. They operate independently, but they can be very closely entwined. In the top 100, you do have a lot of, let's say, comedians or comedy type podcasts or even true crime that have comedians as hosts. And so, you know, what do we consider as just a network when we're looking through these things? I think that like you're spot on in people always talk about comedy or comedians in the word of mouth recommendations of things, which is hard to quantify, right? The point of that is that I think that comedians and hosts that are on comedy shows are in a way like more relatable, right? And it, and like that, that's why you get a lot of word of mouth is because being able to sort of remove someone from their day to day and make them laugh and they think it's funny, whether it's just a conversation or it's just a series of jokes. Someone like Bill who can just speak into a microphone and everyone listens is just it amazes me. It's remarkable that he can do that. He goes for like two hours every time. The point is that every show, even though it feels the same, is kind of is unique in itself and can find audiences, whether it's 500 people or 500,000 people, right? Like it's just about catching people where they are consuming content and trying to build some type of community in the hopes that you can continue to attract small percentages of audiences within each of those ecosystems because one of them is going to find faster traction and that all impacts the sales side too is like sales want to be on shows with people who are engaging and love their products and know how to speak to their audiences what, what role does this play in like a general comedian's life like i know it's different for everybody but 
I imagine that a, a general comedian in 2023 has social media, is on tour, has records that they're putting out, stand-up specials if they're successful. And then they, a lot of them also have podcasts. And, and I know just from experience that some of that, like, you know, the podcast is a way for them to kind of get access to people for like the future. Sometimes it's to make ad sales money. Like sometimes they want to use this as like a piece of derivative property for the future. How do you guys see that? So, I mean, you hit all of my main points, depending on where the artist is in the trajectory of their career and their life those things in the hierarchy of importance move around, right? I think the ultimate goal, and this is, I think, where a lot of our founders had, start, had started, you know, Al Madrigal as well. They created a podcast to help sell tickets to their live shows, right? Tell people where you are. When you're an artist that sells in live, right, that really wants to do theater shows or is trying to promote, right, live shows that they're doing. When you are in TV and film and you just want to also interview the people that you're working with there too, right? Like the podcast becomes a vehicle for additional conversations that can be in long form, but also cut down to short form. So you're recording it one time, but you can get a hundred pieces of content from that and share that across a variety of platforms, right? So how do we look at that? We look at that as like we, as all things comedy, the mission statement is what can we do to help these artists grow and you know find their audiences and monetize them right that sounds really bad to say it in that way but more how can you reach audiences but maintain a living right like this is part of your livelihood it's it's kind of the machine these days for better or worse completely and and so the the podcast becomes a vehicle to promote themselves but also talk about things that when they're on stage they may not be able to talk about right but it also becomes material for them i think that a lot of comedians use their podcast to work out things. Like I've heard things on shows that I've then seen them on stage and I can see the evolution of that material and it's fascinating. You know, for us, you want to have all of those things because if one goes away, you at least have the others that you can depend on, right? I think when COVID hit, live touring ended. So what were people doing? They were podcasting because all they could, they needed to talk to someone. They needed to be in front of people. They needed to have that connectivity that they couldn't get because they weren't on stage, right? So as a creator or as a company, like those are the things that you have to look at, like to diversify is to try to mitigate risk in the market and have these different pieces run. And one might be more successful than the other, other, but like it helps you if one of them goes away all of a sudden, right? That you have this diversity. Who are some of all thing comedy's competitors? That's a good question. I would say there's not a one-to-one -one comparison. Like there's no one that I would say like, yep, that is 100% someone that we are aligned with on everything in the sense of like on the podcast side, we compete for all of our shows uh, in motion picture and TV. Like you get things greenlit and they don't or they get something greenlit and we don't, right? It doesn't necessarily work in that way. Podcasting is going through a different phase, right? Where it is it all of a sudden was the darling for like a few years there, right? It was like the Wild West. And there wasn't a lot of tech to back up, you know, a lot of the brand sales or distribution, but those platforms are getting better. Like the data is getting better. The tools you have access to are getting better, right? Which is sort of weeding out people who are bad actors. It's weeding out, you know, those people who aren't able to monetize their shows effectively. It's also, you know, companies are not able to adapt and change. And there's been a lot that have kind of closed their doors in the last like six months. And that's a lot that has to do with a lot of like macroeconomic issues. So who are our direct competitors? 
I would say that there's not one that sort of checks that box. I would say that like there aren't that many, let's say, comedy focused networks, but there were a couple and they were we were actually like very good friends with them. You're always in direct competition because if you're working with a show, right, a partnered show as a service based partnership where we're just doing sales and marketing, then everyone sort of checks that box as like can compete with you on those deals. But we still market and collaborate with other networks because it's the only way that you can effectively grow a show is collaboration. So you guys are operating pretty heavily in like the video space on YouTube. In addition to like, it sounds like you're everywhere. You're used multi-platform before. And I think that's the perfect explanation of like who you are and what you guys do. But just to give our listeners a sense of like your scale, how many downloads or streams or whatever you want to call it, like, are you guys generally doing on audio and then on video? Because I'm just curious, like, uh, how video is competing in general. Yeah, so I I think it can ebb and flow, right? Like video, it's really YouTube, right? Audio is very fragmented, depending on the consumer. And if it's an Apple device, they're mostly on Apple podcasts or like Spotify in general and Samsung devices, so on and so forth. So it's a more fragmented system there. So it's a little hard to sort of give you the whole of the holistic picture also because like Spotify now is doing video and audio fully like tightly wound together. So for us, like, I don't necessarily want to give like a full number, but I can definitely say that like, we're, you know, on the audio side, we're averaging like plus or minus like in the teens, like, you know, per month. And so that's just the download side impressions wise. Like, you know, when you look at like programmatic, you know, you're, you're looking at a five multiple or eight multiple, depending on how many spots you have and how long the shows are. And then on the video side, it's not equal to yet. So I would say it's probably like another 40%, maybe 50% of whatever we're doing, but it's all, it's a hard number to quantify on the video side as well, because some creators, it's not only a podcast channel. It's also more than that. Well, congrats. I mean, those are huge numbers and it's, it's very cool to see because in a lot of ways you guys have like, you know, you've raised capital, like you have famous founders, but also the network feels like it's an indie, you know, for the little guy, which makes me happy. Yeah. Well, that, that initial funding was just seed too. It wasn't necessarily like a full raise. So it, it definitely has a more indie feel. Yeah. And our founders are still very actively involved. I mean, that's something where, you know, we're for a lot of creator companies before, um, and they are the most actively involved and also like the most generous with their time. And I'm excited to just continue to help grow the infrastructure and find new ways to like reach audiences. And I think like media and entertainment is becoming something very different. And we can see that it's heading in this direction for a while, but I think the pendulum is sort of shifting um, in that direction a lot faster than I think most anticipated. And it's kind of exciting to be at the at the beginning of that. Well, Russell, thank you so much for joining us. Where where can our listeners find you? All things comedy accounts on all platforms uh, or ATC for short. Me personally, you can hit me up on LinkedIn. Thanks again to Russell Weissman for joining me on this episode of Podcast Perspectives. Have questions, tips, or podcast recommendations? You can follow me on all of the socials at Jeff Umbro. Podcast Perspectives is a production of The Poglomerate. If you're looking for help producing, distributing, or monetizing your podcast, you can find us at poglomerate.com, shoot us an email at listen at or follow us on all social platforms at Poglomerate. 
Thank you to Chris Boniello, Henry Lavoie, and Jordan Aaron for producing this show, and also to our marketing team, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, Morgan Swift, Matt Keeley, Annabella Penna, and a special thank you to Dan Christo. Thank you all for listening, and I will catch you next week.